Welcome to Breaking Green, a podcast by Global Justice Ecology Project. On Breaking Green, we will talk with activists and experts to examine the intertwined issues of social, ecological, and economic injustice. We will also explore some of the more outrageous proposals to address climate and environmental crises that are falsely being sold as green. I am your host, Steve Taylor. Antonio Guterres, Secretary General of the United Nations, called the sixth report by the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change a code red for humanity. The report made clear that humans have already heated the planet by 1.1 degrees Celsius since the 19th century, with the last decade likely being the hottest in 125,000 years. The report also states that there is an imminent risk of hitting the internationally agreed-upon 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold for global warming within just decades. The report warns that nations no longer have the ability to prevent climate change from worsening over the next 30 years, and that we now need to invest in protecting vulnerable populations. Offering a glimmer of hope, the IPCC noted that with intensive action, some of the worst effects of climate change may still be avoided. But is there the political will to do so? What solutions are being proposed? Are they likely to work, or merely techno-fixes designed to prop up business as usual? In this episode of Breaking Green, we will ask eminent environmental scientist and activist Dr. Michael Dorsey about the recent IPCC report and the current UN efforts to address our collective future. Dr. Dorsey holds a BS and PhD in natural resources and environmental policy from the University of Michigan. He also holds a Master of Forest Science from Yale and an MA in Anthropology from Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Dorsey was an assistant professor in Dartmouth College's Environmental Studies program and the director of the college's Climate Justice Research Project. Among his academic positions, Dr. Dorsey was a visiting professor at Wesleyan University, has served as faculty at the University of KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa, and the KTH Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm. Dr. Dorsey also served as a director of the Sierra Club and is a founding member of the Center for Environmental Health. He also served at the US EPA during the Obama administration and NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. With decades of leadership as an activist, administrator, and educator, his accomplishments are too numerous to mention here. Dr. Dorsey, thank you for joining us. Steve, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, Dr. Dorsey, you have worn so many hats. You have served as director of the Sierra Club, have been an outspoken public academic and activist, and have even worked at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory and the EPA. Before we get to climate change, I would like to ask you, What brought you to focus on the environment personally and professionally? Well, you know, just a correction, a minor one. So I did work at the Jet Propulsion Lab, but I was uh, on the advisory, uh, or I served the EPA in an advisory capacity. I was never an employee at the Environmental Protection Agency, but had the uh, pleasure to serving two administrators there, you know, on the National Advisory Committee uh, of the EPA, the NAC, as it were, uh, and we served both uh, Administrator Jackson and also Administrator McCarthy uh, during the Obama administration. It was a great honor to to serve two uh, leading environmentalists, as it were, 
uh, and two folks that I think are, you know, trying to uh, keep environmental policy uh, full of integrity. Um, but, you know, for me, um, really, you know, I've been working on these issues broadly called environmental issues, uh, now sometimes called sustainability or sustainable development issues, really since, you know, a very, very young age, you know. Um, you know, back in Michigan, where I was born, you know, I had the opportunity to be involved in uh, the Boy Scouts, uh, a group uh, more recently looked upon less favorably than it was, you know, arguably, uh, you know, decades ago. Uh, but still, I think, uh, serving as a important beacon then and to some extent today for young folks uh, to experience the environment uh, and to engage with it uh, and to perhaps for some to, to move on to protecting it. And, and that's that's the legacy that I sort of stepped through, one of being, uh, you know, fortunate and privileged enough, you know, initially starting uh, in a Cub Scout troop uh, that was run by my great aunt, my late great aunt Betty. Uh, just so happens that uh, today, um, on the 28th uh, of August, is her birthday. So it's uh, it's definitely um, a wonderful time to have the discussion. But starting in a Cub Scout, uh, you know, troop with her and, and going into the Boy Scouts gave me an opportunity to see. Uh, nature in Michigan, uh, and ultimately um, around the world. I, I had the chance to attend the, the 16th World Scout Jamboree in Australia, uh, you know, as a Boy Scout, um, you know, having, having left the Cub Scouts, um, and see many, many places um, across the U.S., uh, from certainly across the Great Lakes, but also uh, in the upper Midwest and, in you know, eastern Midwest, uh, western Pennsylvania, uh, doing, you know, uh, whitewater rafting, you know, in the uh, West Virginia, uh, Ohio uh, River Basin area, uh, on Cheat River, on the New River, Upiakahaney River, um, canoeing across Michigan. Uh, you know, and that that early background uh, motivated me to become a member of the Sierra Club. Uh, you know, I, my membership, I'm a now a life member and been member of the Sierra Club for really decades since the, the early 80s. I was, um, you know, sent in a, a membership to the Sierra Club probably in the early 1980s. And uh, uh, and so early that my first Sierra Club outing um, wasn't a local outing. It was, uh, I, I saved up my, my coins and nickels and, and got uh, a couple aunties and, and my late grandmother to chip in some some money to uh, get me to go to the high Sierras. And so managed to take a youth uh, trip uh, in the Sierras uh, when I was uh, uh, not old enough to drive. I was 15. So flew out to LA, um, having had raised the money to pay for the trip and get the flight. And was met by my aunt who drove me to Trailhead in the uh, Sequoia uh, National Park and, and spent uh, almost two weeks, uh, a little more than a week uh, in the back country, in the high country. Um, and, and it's that foundational uh, sort of interest. Um, you know, I would say a lot, a lot of it perhaps self-motivated and in a, a unique uh, fashion that some believe I operate in. Um, I say it that way because I was always trying to convince my father 
um, the other Michael Dorsey, um, to join me on these trips. And his refrain was, boy, for me, camping is Holiday Inn with black and white TV. Uh, so, um, but he was, you know, always a, a constant supporter. Um, so it, it's that, that, that background from which I come and seeing both the splendor of our amazing, uh, national park system, uh, and federal lands, uh, as a very young, uh, person in this country, uh, and also seeing, uh, Imminent threats to it, uh, in the form of, you know, visible air pollution. Uh, you know, you know, very much memorable. You know, as much as I to take that Sierra Club trip, flew into Los Angeles and, you know, drove from there up to uh, Sequoia, uh, and that was, you know, in the mid '80s when, you know, LA was still, you know, fighting a very, very serious battle with pollution in, in Los Angeles Basin, um, <clears throat> much worse than it is today. Um, but so seeing these things visibly, uh, seeing uh, threats to uh, the Great Lakes uh, watershed, as it were, ecosystems uh, from pollution in the lakes themselves and, and pollution in uh, you know tributary rivers, Rouge River in particular, which is you know cuts through a big swath of Detroit. Uh, it, it was those. It, it was those early uh, encounters with both splendor, natural beauty, and obvious uh, desperation and obvious, uh, you know, threats that, you know, motivated me to want to think about, well, what could we do to tackle these problems? What could we do to get ahead of them? And also understand who is behind them. You know, why are we seeing this, you know, pollution? Uh, Who's driving it? Um, and and that that's those were the sort of the early motivators. Well, that's very interesting. It sounds like you had a very personal connection early early in life. Um, so I've heard you say that you're a political economist in other interviews, and that's very important to you. And and I heard you also say in your answer to the previous question that you you were interested in who was behind some of the problems and threats to uh, the natural world. Um, how is uh, being a political economist important to you when it comes to addressing environmental issues? Well, you know, political economy really is a, an attempt to understand the way in which, you know, certain economic forces uh, are interwoven and interconnected to decisions that uh, governments uh, make or government agencies make or how, you know, uh, how public policy is shaped under the influence of uh, certain, uh, you know, economic actors. Uh, and really, you know, political economists, you know, I think it's fair to say that we, we're committed to, to trying to understand the way in which, uh, you know, different modalities of capitalism uh, have implications on the world writ large. Uh, and for me, um, you know, I turn to, you know, political economy, to the theoretical disposition of political economy, to try to make sense of the way in which, you know, capitalism uh, creates uh, threats 
to not just ecosystems, as it certainly does, uh, but also to human systems and ecosystems uh, intertwined. Um, and I, I think it's a, a way of uh, making sense of phenomena in the world, uh, making sense of the way in which certain institutions, whether they be not just government institutions, but also corporations, and as well as individuals, certain kinds of individuals, those that are you know, somewhat powerful in society, whether they be um, you know, the, the owners of the uh, means of production, as it were, uh, we also call those folks capitalists, uh, whether they be uh, you know, folks that are working for those capitalists. Um, I, I think that the political economy approach provides a keen, nuanced way to understand and appreciate and ultimately perhaps change certain kinds of phenomena that shape the world as we experience it and as we navigate it. Well, when you talk about phenomenon, uh, we, we have the phenomenon of global warming. And, and just months before the, the Conference of Parties or the COP in Glasgow uh, later on this year, the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change issued its most dire report to date. Basically, it said the 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, threshold that was agreed upon is likely likely to be reached uh, in, in, in a matter of decades. What do you think of this report? Well, look, you know, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's most recent report uh, is certainly nothing new to those that have been paying attention. Uh, it perhaps may be new to some, you know, I'll call them political troglodytes that uh, are in various countries, you know, denying the existence of climate change. But to all serious operators, uh, political operators, scientists, certainly, um, even civilians, uh, what we heard in the most recent uh, offering from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is really nothing new. Uh, it really underscores, uh, you know, going on not even just a couple decades, but coming into almost, you know, four or five decades of research and, and work. Uh, we're coming up on the, the 50th anniversary of the Stockholm Conference on the World Environment, uh, or at the Stockholm Conference on the UN Conference on the Human Environment, the Stockholm Conference on the Environment, as it were, that took place in. Uh, 1972. Uh, that 50th anniversary will be next year in, in 2022. And it was coming out of the Stockholm uh, Conference on the Human Environment that the United Nations, uh, looking at data that they were getting uh, you know, from scientists around the world, decided to charge the World uh, Meteorological Organization, the WMO, to uh, basically put together what, what we now call the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, to bring the, the world's governments together to look at the unfolding climate crisis as it was understood then in the early 70s. And really, that that early 70s work was really building a, almost on a century's work at the time, uh, you know, started by, you know, folks like Svante Arrhenius, the, the, the great Swedish uh, physicist, thermodynamicist, uh, and many others even going before uh, Arrhenius. Um, so there's really, if you're aware of that, relatively small arc of time, you know, just over a century, um, then the, the, the most current uh, offering from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is simply putting another block, as it were, in our understanding of the unfolding uh, climate crisis as it is now, but also just the unfolding 
uh, nature of climate change as it is uh, impacting uh, quite adversely many regions of this world, uh, both in the global north, in the richest countries of the world, but especially acute in the global south, um, in, in Africa, uh, in Asia, in Latin America, uh, and oddly enough, uh, impacting those regions uh, in the proverbial third world, as some like to call it, uh, quite disproportionately, because we know, we've got the data that says those in Africa, Asia, Latin America, they contribute the least to the problem. They have some of the lowest uh, emissions in terms of uh, carbon pollution, as it were, or the pollution that's driving uh, climate change. Uh, yet uh, the impacts, the negative impacts on those communities uh, in those regions, in Africa, Latin America, Asia, are uh, disproportionately large. Uh, people there uh, suffer the most. Uh, and also to add pain to that misery that they're experiencing as the crisis unfolds, uh, those individuals also pay a disproportionate amount of their income uh, to obtain uh, energy, and whether that's uh, for uh, heating oil to keep uh, you know, food on the table, or whether that's for uh, light, when and if they get it and when and if they have it. Uh, so they're paying more, uh, getting less, uh, being harmed more, and polluting less. So they're uh, damned if they do, damned if they don't, and doubly damned in both cases. Well, well, Dr. Dorsey, I was going to ask you about this idea of a, of a climate debt owed to the global south, to those who are not really responsible for climate change, but are facing some of the greatest impacts now and possibly in the future. I, I mean, the United Nations at least theoretically recognizes this concept of, of climate debt. They, they don't explicitly re refer to it as such, but they've created something called the uh, uh, loss and damage uh, mechanism, which is a, an effort, a uh, relatively paltry one when you do the math over it, but an effort to uh, extend resources to those that have uh, experienced uh, tremendous losses and damages from climate change. Uh, and those individuals, those communities, those countries are, are disproportionately in the global south, in, in Africa, Latin America, Asia. Um, so there is some recognition of this. Lots of other folks uh, have you know, begun to work out the math in terms of how much the, uh, those in the wealthy countries, um, whether they be in the United States or Europe, Australia, uh, and so forth, how much do they actually owe people uh, in the poor countries of the world? Um, so some folks are, are looking at the problem from a variety of angles, but there is, I think, uh, it's fair to say that those of us um, in the global north, in the wealthy countries, uh, we've actually extracted a tremendous amount uh, from those in the global south, initially in terms of simply uh, taking resources uh, from uh, resource-rich countries, you know, in Africa, across Africa, uh, Asia, and Latin America, and then in terms of our overall emissions. Uh, wealthy countries here in the United States, in Europe, Australia, uh, we've emitted considerably more resources uh, than uh, those folks in poorer countries. Indeed, the very definition of being poor is that you emit less um, because you just simply don't have the resources. Uh, atop the fact that here in, in the wealthier countries, um, we waste so much. Uh, so when you add up uh, our simple use of energy combined with what we waste and the inefficiencies here, uh, indeed, uh, we are contributing more to the, the global problem of unfolding climate change uh, than otherwise. I wanted to ask you a follow-up on that. Um, you know, 
the idea of nature-based solutions and things like RED or RED+, Plus, there is concern that these programs may, may weigh heavily on, on indigenous cultures and they really don't have a voice about how their land may be used with these so-called nature-based solutions. You know, to, to sequester forests, you know, you may have to remove people who have indigenous cultures or, or rural communities, uh, and, it, and it impacts people, part of the, the peasant food web. Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the program that you're talking about, uh, as you dubbed it, RED or RED Plus, which is a, an acronym in the infinite acronymies of the United Nations for reducing emissions from deforestation and degradation, or, and really, actually, it's forest degradation. So uh, it's basically an effort uh, concocted uh, by those in the United Nations Initially, you know, to attempt to uh, get a hold in just what the name says, you know, uh, you know, trying to uh, eliminate uh, the emissions from uh, forest deforestation uh, and, and degradation. Um, but what we've seen is that program get caught up and tied up uh, with corporations that make promises to put money into the program but don't. Uh, corporations that make claims that they're going to do reforestation or afforestation uh, and do less of it than they claim. Uh, companies that are also, uh, you know, trafficking in what could probably best be, uh, you know, dubbed a kind of a, a forestry arbitrage shell game, uh, where uh, companies uh, value forests in a certain way uh, to local peoples, uh, perhaps inflate the value in tertiary markets uh, where they sell um, you know, proxy access to, the for, to those forests in the form of uh, credits uh, or other types of uh, market commodities, uh, and, and then take the deltas and the differences in the, in the price differences between what they are promising communities sometimes, which they don't give those communities, and what they may be promising others in tertiary markets. So it, unfortunately, you know, in essence, the United Nations has, has created a, essentially kind of a, a vulgar Ponzi scheme uh, to, on its face, uh, protect uh, forests, but an increasing amount of data now coming into about a decade uh, plus, actually almost two decades uh, of data really, uh, says that really that program uh, of reducing emissions from deforestation and, and forest degradation uh, hasn't been all that it's chalked up to. And indeed, it's actually done a, a quite amount of harm to those uh, in uh, forest communities that are had already long before um, bureaucrats from the United Nations and apparatchiks from from their orbital uh, agencies and, and affiliates came along, uh, long before those communities have been struggling uh, and and fighting uh, simple logging companies. Uh, now they have to fight uh, other sorts of uh, let's call them carpet bagging uh, interests that ultimately are undermining the livelihoods and well-being of those uh, in the forest. Um, so it's 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 quite unfortunate uh, that the United Nations would, uh, you know, be at the the sharp end of the knife, as it were, uh, in cutting and harming and undermining uh, the 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 honorable work of forest communities. But uh, unfortunately, uh, that's the case. This is your host, Steve Taylor, and we will be back right after this. Global Justice Ecology Project partners with small nonprofits when a group or organization whose non-for-profit work closely aligns with our mission by becoming a fiscal sponsor. 
This helps them minimize bureaucracy so they can focus on their crucial work for ecological and social justice, forest protection, and human rights. GJEP is proud to sponsor New Hampshire Panther. New Hampshire Panther's mission is to help end racism and systemic bias through community engagement, direct mutual aid, education and curriculum reform, and youth empowerment. Particularly, they are here for the youth. They are here for all the youth whose lives deserve better than to witness or be subjected to police brutality, whose lives deserve better than to feel fear from within their community, whose lives deserve to be seen equally, whose lives deserve to be valued and seen sacred, and whose lives deserve dignity. To learn more, go to nh-panther.squarespace.com. Welcome back to Breaking Green. Well, there's a lot of hope, I think, in the general public, uh, those who are cognizant and aware of global warming, that there's going to be something done by the United Nations uh, to address this. I mean, the IPCC report was quite dire. I mean, it says we're going to reach, you know, the agreed upon limit most likely within a matter of decades, and we may even blow through uh, more tipping points. And and it's going to have devastating consequences. And they actually said that it's we've probably waited too long to avoid a hotter future. So we're, we're you know, we need to spend more in mitigation and, and, and taking care of people. Uh, and, and in, you know, uh, preparing against some of the consequences. My question to you, 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 you mentioned uh, those with the means of production. How much access do they have? I mean, how much influence do they have within the UN? We see red. We see all this talk about carbon offsets. Um, two questions. One, how much access do the people who have the means of production have to these talks and, this, and, and uh, these negotiations? And, and two... Is there actually anything going to be done when it comes to actual emissions? I mean, we, we people hear net zero. Our net zero emissions is actually sounds like we're, we're going to be dressing the greenhouse gases. But it seems to be a, a lot of it's on paper with these offsets. Well, well a couple of things, given your, your, your two questions. So the, the, on the first one, um, you know, corporations in particular have a tremendous amount of access to the United Nations uh, process, as it were. And, and that, that's not only the case with the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change negotiations and the negotiations around you know, climate change broadly, but that's true of negotiations in other uh, domains as well, whether they be on arms control, uh, whether they be on biodiversity, uh, whether they be on laws of the sea. Uh, we see corporations not only gaining access to the negotiation sessions, not only uh, working with uh, different countries and different agencies, both uh, government agencies as well as multilateral agencies like the World Bank and, and uh, other uh, you know, multilateral intergovernmental agencies. We see in the case specifically of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, uh, the secretariat for the, the climate change negotiations at the UN actively courts uh, corporate sponsors. So oftentimes we'll see uh, at a um, the yearly negotiations and you know the sort of multi multiple times a year the, the UN is having uh, sessions to negotiate uh, around climate change. The big event is usually always towards the end of the year, late November, early December, but they have intersessionals and so forth. But but oftentimes those uh, meetings are 
sponsored by the likes of some of the largest polluting industries on earth, uh, whether it be in terms of automobile manufacturers like BMW, whether it be in terms of um, steel manufacturers, or large mining interests. Uh, the United Nations actively seeks out corporations to uh, you know, basically obtain uh, money and sponsorship uh, dollars uh, and also other kinds of technical resources and so forth. So corporations have a huge amount of access directly into negotiations. Uh, and, and that access um, that is sought out by the United Nations is, is happening in parallel to the uh, activities that corporations themselves are, are conducting to, to gain access to uh, negotiators uh, and parliamentarians and bureaucrats from other countries, from different agencies. So there's a tremendous amount of access that corporations have uh, or those that control the means of production, to, to use a political ec economic term to describe corporations. So they absolutely do. Um, and that falls into your second question, which just remind me again what that one was. Is there going to be something actually done? There seems to be a lot of uh, reliance on net zero emissions and, and, and the idea of, of um, offsets. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's lots of problems with this whole idea of, you know, what some dub is, you know, net zero. Um, you know, this idea that we will get to um, some zero emissions target. Uh, there have been uh, interesting, you know, revelations about uh, why the concept is troubling uh, and why, you know, some have put it, you know, why net zero has nothing to do with zero at all. Um, so, and, and those criticisms, I, I think, you know, come from, you know, a variety of, of positions. You know, one is simply the ability to uh, measure uh, corporate emissions. Uh, many corporations are not forthcoming about uh, their overall emissions. Uh, and indeed, you know, in some fairness to those corporations, uh, some uh, lack the ability or haven't spent the resources to track emissions. Um, so the idea that, you know, a company might be claiming to achieve net zero, um, you know, and have no notion of what it's emitting, uh, you know, sort of shines a bright light on just the laughability of the concept in the first place, you know. Um, but it is certainly a catch-all, uh, you know, sort of term that lots of companies have turned to. Uh, I, the other part of the problem is that, you know, many co companies, in particular many large emitters, um, they often set different baselines. You know, they, they want to uh, take their emissions to zero based on a certain year of emissions. Uh, sometimes the years that they pick uh, have you know, quite low emissions, you know, they, they, so they, they play kind of a, let's call it a funny math with, in terms of what they will measure as their baseline against and, and, and target and set their targets against. So there, you, you have to have, um, th there's a lot of incoherence between companies in terms of what they're doing to achieve quote unquote net zero. So I, I think in the end of the day, um, you know, really the biggest solutions that we see to tackle uh, the unfolding climate crisis aren't being led so much by corporations, but they're being driven by citizens and social movements. Uh, it's, it's citizens and social movements that have been pressuring governments to regulate corporations and not simply turn to them and, you know, with fingers crossed to hope they do what they say when they say they're going to do it. Uh, it's individuals and citizens that have also been, uh, you know, challenging corporations, whether it's um, 
through outright uh, civil disobedience and protest, whether it's through shareholder activism, whether it's through, uh, you know, sort of sunshine campaigns, as it were, or shining a light on, you know, corporate malfeasance and, and corporate criminal recidivistic behavior, which you know, many corporations do. They, uh, you know, most corporations, most of the Fortune 500 is is basically uh, kind of a, a gang, a, a cacosocratic gang of sociopathic uh, institutions. And, and by that, you know, I don't offer that up sort of lightly, but it, it's probably fair to say that most companies that repeatedly break the law, repeatedly harm uh, civilians, repeatedly despoil the environment over and over again, uh, you know, uh, week on week, uh, Q on Q, year on year, um, you know, anybody that was doing that as an as a individual would be called sociopath, right? If you went out there, Steve, and decided that you're going to uh, throw a rock in your neighbor's house weekly uh, and try to uh, defy police capture uh, and blame it on neighbors and, and try to, you know, create, uh, you know, sort of straw men as to why the rock was going through the neighbor's house weekly. Certainly, authorities would be after you. But if you did that yourself, it'd be fair to call you a sociopath. Um, you know, if you were threatening someone regularly, uh, you know, and, and menacing people regularly, th- those are the sort of the sine qua non, sociopathic behavior. So we see corporations, we don't oftentimes think of them as such, but it's fair to think of them as such. It's fair to identify them as sociopathic because they repeatedly break the law and not just break the law in a minor way. They repeatedly, you know, poison whole communities. They repeatedly uh, despoil ecosystems. They repeatedly uh, do things as basic as, you know, FedEx and UPS double park on on tight and busy city streets to disrupt uh, traffic across a whole city. Um, Most people sort of take that for granted. That's just what the UPS truck does. But that's really a form of sociopathy when we openly, knowingly undermine uh, civic uh, and social well-being uh, for our own interests. That's that's basically textbook sociopathic behavior. And that's really unfortunately what a lot of corporations do from Federal Express to United Postal Service, UPS, uh, over to McDonald's, uh, back on uh, to a whole long list of you know, the top polluters of greenhouse gas emissions, whether that be Exxon, Mobil, whether that be some of the state oil companies like Saudi Aramco and so forth. Basically, the again, the Fortune 500, really Fortune you know, 1000, the whole panoply of these institutions emitting uh, out uh, sociopathic activity, uh, you know, too much uh, the chagrin uh, and um, sadness for much of humanity, unfortunately. A, a very sort of parasitic uh, kind of um, cancerous formation, but thankfully a relatively new one. You know, the current uh, configuration of these firms has only been around about 200 years and big efforts underway to, you know, make the the pathways are that they probably won't be around for another 100 years, perhaps, uh, because of these this legacy of bad behavior. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. A 100-year uh, time frame, a lot could be happening in 100 years, especially if the uh, IPCC Absolutely. report is correct. Uh, there's going to be a lot of challenges. So what I get from that is, you know, uh, the old saying, trust but verify. There's a lot of things said, but is it actually being followed through with? So I, I wanted to ask you, uh, budgets uh, reflect priorities. Uh, we have uh, the uh, infrastructure bill, uh, looks like it's going to be passing in, in, uh, through Congress. 
Have you had an opportunity to look at that, read about it? And if so, how does that uh, look when it comes to actually following through with uh, concerns regarding global warming? Well, the infrastructure bill certainly, as you know, has passed just recently, passed the Senate, um, and is you know making its way uh, to very likely you know pass the full the full Congress. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't do uh, nearly as much as it could or should uh, to tackle the unfolding climate crisis. Uh, it makes some commitments to you know absolutely uh, you know I think it's fair to call them worthless technologies, certainly futuristic technologies uh, that. Even in the best cases, in the best forecast, uh, you know, won't be developed for you know, maybe twenty or thirty, perhaps even more years. Technologies like carbon capture and storage, uh, tremendous amount of commitments in the infrastructure legislation for nuclear power. You know, no more a foolish and expensive way to boil water than ever dreamt up by mankind. Um, so, um, but at the same time, very little commitments to. Uh, retooling our you know, collapsing grid here in the United States, uh, few uh, commitments and few resources dedicated to the most promising technologies, uh, solar and wind technologies, even though those technologies are, are booming. And, and right now, uh, just as of the end of uh, 2020, represent the cheapest way to generate uh, energy, uh, not just in the United States, but around the world. Um, so it's a curiously, I think, fair to say, um, p- schizophrenic piece of legislation uh, that makes commitments to uh, attempt to tackle uh, the unfolding climate crisis, but in the, the sort of policy schizophrenia, as it were, makes the commitments to the wrong thing. Dr. Dorsey, it seems as if you put a lot of emphasis on social movements and, and not so much uh, governmental or corporate solutions. So my question to you, is the UN even capable of dealing with this issue? Is there hope there? Uh, I think it's fair to say that the UN is, while it's a great convener, uh, it's perhaps a little more than that. And we need, uh, you know, while convening is certainly important to bring, you know, a multitude of actors together to think about particular problems, whether it be climate change or biodiversity or, you know, managing the global oceans, commons and so forth. Certainly important. The solutions that we need, um, you know, won't exactly be a, a derivative and a byproduct of those convenings. So really, it's not so much that the UN is, uh, you know, absolutely problematic. It's got lots of problems, certainly, um, but it it is a it has limits. Um, and and the the solutions that we need to get ahead of the unfolding climate crisis are beyond the essentially the, the basic norms and established mission and mandate of the United Nations. Um, we need more than convening, right? I think the UN can certainly play a role in, in you know, basically doing things like you mentioned earlier, doing things like helping us do trust and verification of certain processes, whether that be re- reduction of emissions and so forth. But we ultimately need uh, both corporations uh, doing their part, but increasingly since they are, you know, largely sociopathic institutions, unfortunately, uh, recidivistic criminal corporate, you know, criminal enterprises, uh, and that's a point of fact. It's not offered as hyperbole. Some people get confused. It's it's tricky uh, for you know some people to think, oh, the corporation is a recidivistic uh, criminal enterprise. It absolutely is. They repeat offenders. Uh, many corporations rack up literally billions, uh, and sometimes some you know, approaching trillions of dollars of fines. You know, if you go across the collective of the Fortune 500, they really 
aggregate trillions of dollars in fines and penalties that they pay yearly uh, for their illegal, not just malfeasance, not bad activity, but illegal criminal conduct. Okay, so when we know that, we we know that this particular formation, um, uh, you know, aside from what it does, that's amoral. Okay, just criminal activity, it is causing large problems um, around the world, global global problems, and so. We see sometimes that, you know, just like uh, with other criminals and terrorists, uh, sometimes you have to eradicate them from the face of the earth if you want change. You know, just recently we lost a, a dozen U.S. servicemen uh, during the the, the uh, evacuation of Afghanistan. Uh, and the day after that happened, the president of the United States uh, uh, neutralized. He did an over-the-horizon attack on two suspected, assumed, presumed uh, uh, orchestrators of the, the terrorist bombing that killed a dozen U.S. servicemen, uh, injured uh, many, many more, and killed what now almost 200 Afghan civilians. Uh, what did they do? They neutralized. They killed those that, that they thought were uh, behind that attack. So they killed the criminals. They eradicated those criminals from the face of the earth. So sometimes we, we see institutions that are up to criminal activity, uh, harming people, harming institutions, they possibly, following that same doctrine, let's call it the Biden doctrine, they have to be eliminated from the face of the earth. Um, and that perhaps is the only way we can have big, big breakthroughs. You know, if if terrorist entities, uh, you know, criminal enterprises are uh, regularly, day on day, month on month, quarter on quarter, year on year, menacing and doing, you know, criminal activities, Sometimes you have to kill them dead and get them off the, the planet to get breakthroughs. So that may sound extreme for some, uh, particularly in that vernacular, but we have to think of that uh, strategically. We may have to, you know, uh, you know, defang and eliminate certain corporations that are driving a problem. Uh, we're seeing that. Some of these entities will perhaps collapse under their own weight. Uh, right now, uh, fossil fuel technology is no longer uh, the cheapest way to generate energy. Uh, clean, green uh, wind and solar is. So those corporations that are still uh, betting on financing, looking for financing, seeking money, sunk, seek, both seeking money and sinking money into fossil fuel uh, you know, energy generation, those entities may collapse on, under their own weight uh, because what they're doing is you know, basically putting bad money after bad practices that aren't going to produce re returns and results. Um, so we may see some of these bad actors that are driving the unfolding climate crisis uh, perhaps collapse under their own weight. Some of them will probably have to be uh, removed from the face of the earth as we know it. Um, and that's just a, you know, I think that's in, in good course of what we can call the Biden doctrine. You know, you've got a criminal enterprise, you've got to drop a bomb on it and get rid of it. So, Dr. Dorsey, I wanted to ask you a question about the former organization you were affiliated with, the Sierra Club. Uh, not too long ago, I don't know if you know or not, but uh, the Sierra Club cautiously endorsed the, the genetically engineered American chestnut tree, um, which many critics feel will open the door. It will be a Trojan horse for, for more commercial ventures when it comes to tree plantations for uh, bio biofuels. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, you know, I know uh, not a lot of the details on that particular case, but, you know, I'm certainly not surprised. You know, uh, recently the now soon-to-be uh, former executive director of the Sierra Club, uh, 
uh, outgoing executive director Michael Brune announced his uh, resignation. Uh, you know, uh, you know, in a relatively bad light. Uh, you know, uh, on the sort of the shoulders of uh, mismanagement, uh, uh, discriminatory policies, uh, short-sighted thinking. Uh, initially, he was you know quite aligned with the, the gas industry, um, even though he you know uh, as he exited, he gave an apology. Uh, for the Sierra Club having been aligned with the gas industry, though he wrote a book before he became executive director championing gas as a way of generating power. So really that uh, old outgoing leadership is is transitioning away uh, and perhaps hopefully uh, we'll see new innovative thinking at the Sierra Club that's not aligned with, you know, bad science, that's not aligned with, you know, the sort of the, I'll call it, Genetic engineering cronyism and so forth, uh, and really, you know, focuses the the energies and excellence of you know that hundred, almost hundred and forty year old, hundred and thirty plus year old organization, uh, you know, on um, you know what it could do uh, more robustly, and that that's you know champion uh, communities, uh, champion uh, you know legitimate science. Uh, and, and on behalf of ecosystems and, and communities, and I think as we see, you know, uh, Michael Brune phase out, that that there'll be a chance to uh, retool, uh, rethink, and, and reconfigure the Sierra Club uh, in a more um, rigorous manner. Time will tell it. Dr. Dorsey, is there anything that I have not asked you that you'd like to comment on for this interview? No, it's, it's really been a pleasure, uh, and, and I really appreciate you know you taking the time, and, and thank you for doing so. It's my pleasure to be with you. Well, thank you, Dr. Dorsey. You've been very generous with your time. You have been listening to Breaking Green, a global justice ecology project podcast. To learn more about Global Justice Ecology Project, visit globaljusticeecology.org. Breaking Green is made possible by tax-deductible donations by people like you. Please help us lift up the voices of those working to protect forests, defend human rights, and expose false solutions. Simply text GIVE, G-I-V-E, to 1-716-257-4187. That's 1-716-257-4187.